We see here in Nehemiah chapter 8 something similar in that God wanted the people of Israel to relive his faithfulness. And they were challenged to yearly uh, come together for the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles and some other names. So join with me in Nehemiah chapter 8. We'll start in verse 13. And I want to answer a few questions about uh, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. First of all, what was it? And so we'll see that in the first uh, uh, few verses that we'll read here towards the latter part of Nehemiah 8, starting in verse uh, 14. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths. So think, think with me kind of like tents, all right? So dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild uh, olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, that is, if they, have a, if they had a house. Uh, many of the homes, even similar to many other parts of the world, uh, had flat roofs. So there's many homes in, all across Brazil and uh, even some other countries that I've visited that have flat concrete roofs. So this would be probably similar. So those who had a home would put it on top of their house. Others, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. A little side note. Just before they began to rebuild the temple, decades earlier, uh, they actually had met together for the Feast of Booths, but had not dwelled or had not spent time in tents. So they hadn't celebrated it in quite this way in a long time, even though they had celebrated partially uh, you know, with Ezra and Zerubbabel before the building of the temple. So we continue on in verse 17 of Nehemiah 8. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So it would start with Sabbath, and then it would end with a Sabbath, Sabbath service or, or time, and all between, you know, reading of the law of God and uh, celebrating together and rejoicing. So this is a little bit about the Feast of Booths. Now, you may read, as you read through the Old Testament, you may see that it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, in Hebrew, it was called Sukkot. The Feast of Shelters is another name. The Feast of Ingathering and even the Feast to the Lord. Uh, Leviticus 23, and you don't have to turn there, but a few verses in Leviticus 23, verse 42, it says, this was when it was first instituted. And it says in Leviticus, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Why? That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now we often don't have to, at least from my experience, growing up in Georgia and then coming back to Georgia in, uh, in and out of our time in Brazil for 18 years and now the last four years, we don't often have to evacuate this area of Georgia for hurricanes and things like that. Those who have lived in Florida, especially the coastal areas of Florida, understand more of what that is. It's, it's more common to you know, have to board up the windows and have an evacuation route. And who are you going to stay with? What hotel or what family member are you going to call at the you know, 11th hour and say, hey, we're headed your way? 
But imagine if I told you in a few minutes, listen, by 6 o'clock tonight, you had to leave your house and you're going, really, we don't know for sure where, but you're not coming back to your house. Imagine all of the transition that that would represent. That's the people of Israel fleeing Egypt. You may remember from last week's little quiz we took, the evaluation quiz of Bible knowledge. It wasn't just 6,000 fighting men from Israel. It wasn't even 60,000, but 600,000 fighting men, plus their wives, plus their children. And then you have the older men who weren't you know, young enough to fight. So it's estimated it could have easily been around 2 million people. But part of the Feast of Booze was to remind them this is what the people of Israel did as they fled Egypt and they stayed in tents and they, they had makeshift things even you know, as, they, as they left the country, but God still provided for them. It was one of the pilgrim feasts we see in Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 through 17. We saw last week from this passage how this was not a feast just for uh, the Israelites, but they were also to include travelers in their area. They were to include any servants that, that were with them. They were to, to, enjoy, to include them in the feast and provide uh, you know, food for them. But they were also to, at least all the males were supposed to come to Jerusalem. This was one of three of the pilgrim feasts where they had to come to Jerusalem, and, uh, but they didn't come empty-handed. I'll read in Leviticus 23, verse uh, 40, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 16 and verse 16. says, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths, which is what we're talking about today. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Does that sound familiar to anything that we've read or seen in the New Testament? Well, it does. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 have some principles of giving, and this is, it's, it's taken, we see this in Deuteronomy already, that part of the celebration is giving back to God some of the resources and possessions that God had entrusted them with to manage. So one thing that we can learn from this is the more that we understand God's provision, the more that we remind ourselves of how God has been faithful to provide for us and even people in the past throughout the New Testament, Old Testament, as you read missionary biographies and things like that and are encouraged to see God is faithful. Are there difficult times? Absolutely. But as you embrace and understand how God is faithful, it'll become easier for us to release more and more of our own possessions and more and more of our own resources for God's work. That's what they were doing at the Feast of, of Booths. They didn't come empty-handed. They said, that, God, this is, I want to give back to you. And that all, also fulfills, obviously, the two greatest commandments. Love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And then love our neighbor as ourself. Now, beyond this, we also can see several important things happened at the Feast of Booths in biblical history. The dedication of Solomon's temple, 1 Kings chapter 8. Uh, the gathering of the Jews uh, right before the rebuilding of the temple. So Solomon's temple was destroyed. They came back under Zerubbabel uh, after 70 years in captivity, began to rebuild the temple. So they met at the Feast of Booths again. Ninety years later, we come to where we're at in, the, in Nehemiah chapter 8. 
So 90 years have happened. Now they're, they're once again gathering. They haven't done it as often as they should have, as God, as God uh, said. But God stirred up in their hearts, and they were responding and asked Ezra to read from the law and then began to celebrate once again here in Nehemiah chapter 8. 400 years later, when Christ came, Christ incarnate, we see that it was most likely at the end of the Feast of Booths in John chapter 7 when he made a, a very important declaration. In fact, he says this in John 37, 37, 38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Most likely at the end of the Feast of Booths when Jesus, during Jesus' ministry. But even before that, in John chapter 1, this is a familiar passage, but it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt. That word dwelt is the idea of tabernacled among us. Dwelt among us. It gives a reference to the temporary time that he would be here with us as, as man and as flesh and facing the temptations that we do, yet without sin. But God became flesh and Christ the Son came. And it says, the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled or, or pitched a tent among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it may even be that his birth was around the time of the Feast of Booths. Now, why is this important to us? Now, we're going to learn a little bit and to uh, divide uh, among you who likes to go glamping and who likes to go camping. Who are, who are my tent campers? You, if you go camping, you're going to camp in a tent. Logan, Samuel, my family, Dylan and Owen. If you're going to go, if you're going to go camping, raise your hand and say, no, I'd rather be in like a... Uh, uh, um, Yurt, is that what it's called? Yurt, a yurt, or maybe like a, a full-blown camper with AC and heat and my stove. That's how I like to go camping. And the majority raise their hands, right? So we, you know, our family, we're not avid campers, but we do have a tent. We try to go about once a year. We enjoy camping, being outside, normally in the fall or spring. But nothing like the people of Israel fleeing Egypt. For example... We normally leave with our Honda Odyssey slam-packed full of anything that we could imagine we might need during our three or four days of camping. So we take the double air mattress that blows up by itself, and we take the blankets and the pillows. If it's going to be hot, we have a box fan. If it's going to be cold, we have a little heater because, of course, we're going to have a campsite with electric. Yes, we're in a tent, but we do want some electric, right? And then we have a canopy, and then we bring like a burner, and then we bring a skillet for pancakes, and we bring, you know, sweet stuff to make sweet tea, and we have our, the donuts that we've bought, you know, the little, the little Debbie uh, type of donuts, and all these snacks. But inevitably, we're still going to go to the local family dollar probably two or three times during our camping trip and pick up more stuff, and, and then we'll write stuff down. Boy, we should have brought this. And by the time, you know, we come around next year, like, can we take two cars? I mean, we're taking all this stuff to go camping in the wilderness. People of Israel didn't have any family dollars. They didn't have any Honda Odysseys to, to pack stuff, you know, full. They didn't have the, the, the self-inflatable uh, 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 air mattresses to use. 
So this reminds the people of Israel, listen, even though you're about two million strong and you left, you had to flee the, the land of Egypt, I still took care of you. So what does this mean to us? You may be going through a wilderness time in your life. You might be going through a time physically where you, you don't understand, and maybe even the doctors don't understand everything that's going on with your physical health, and you feel so frustrated that you can't figure it out, and you feel like, man, I am in the wilderness. God can take care of you. God's provision is enough for you. Maybe financially you've been hit, perhaps even with some medical bills or some unexpected things, or you've had a, a car breakdown, or it's in the shop right now, and you think, man, God, I'm in the wilderness. Maybe relationally you think, boy, I wish the relationship here was much better, but it just seems to struggle and we're having trouble. You're in the wilderness in your relationships. As you think back about all that God did for the people of Israel, and even through the Feast of Booths, that reminder may remind you that just as God's provision was enough for them, it'll be enough for you and for me. That's why the Feast of Booths, even though we don't celebrate it now, but maybe we should take a church camping trip. You know, we'll have some in their campers, and, and if we get hot, we'll go fill their AC, and then some in the tents, you know, those who are wilderness. Uh, but we, we don't experience it quite the same, but yet we go through wilderness times, and we need to look back to the God of the Feast of Booths and understand He is enough. And we also see as we go into chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, God's faithfulness is reviewed. So he wanted them to relive it. He wanted them to actually make the tents and stay outside and, and, and do this for seven days. But he also wanted them to review all that he had done, his great faithfulness. This is only going to be part one. Nehemiah chapter 9 is slap full of ways that God showed his faithfulness and his mercy and his great love to the people of Israel. First of all, we, we find God and his faithfulness as creator. So we're reviewing this in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Let's start in verse 1 of Nehemiah 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth. And with earth on their heads. The Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their, their sins and iniquities of their fathers. Now be reminded that when it says they separated themselves from all foreigners, it's because at that time the foreigners were serving false gods and, were, and the Israelites were, were leading, were going down the path of serving the same false gods. Uh, so that's the reference of why they separated from the foreigners, stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. Verse 3, And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites, verse 4, stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunny, Sherebiah, Bunny, and Shenani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hash, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathahiah said, and this is the verse we said this morning, stand up. Bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Why is God worthy to be praised? Why should we stand up and bless his name? Well, we see in verse 6, God's faithfulness as creator. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 6. 
It says, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Now look back at verse 6, the very first part, and creation shows God's preeminence. Creation shows God's preeminence. You are the Lord, you alone. As humans, we, we like to think that we can create things. We like to, to uh, explore. We like to develop new, new things, whether they're physical things or now you know, new apps or new, new types of technology. That gives us a satisfaction as humans that, that boy, we, we are doing something new, something innovative. But yet, in any attempt... When we do that, we're, already, we're taking things that already exist and just using what God's already provided and, and maybe doing something a little different with those resources, but the resources were already there because only God can create. And we see that first of all. You are the Lord and you alone. Creation shows God's preeminence. I may have... I may have said this at one time, but there's obviously there's not a true story, but the joke kind of goes like this. And you know, an atheist, you know, meets with God and and they say, you know, the atheist says, Well, you know, I, I can create something too, and, and God says, Okay, well let's let's go. And so the atheist bends down to grab some dirt, and God says, Uh-uh, you grab your own dirt. Because God created everything. Anything that we use is already something that He has provided for us. Creation shows God's preeminence, but also creation shows God's power. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 6, the latter part of verse 6, it says, You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. During the fellowship time, uh, those of you who are interested, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to show about a seven-minute video. It's fascinating. At least I found it fascinating where this guy and some of his buddies decided that they were going to go to, I think it's called Death Rock Desert. It's a dried up seabed. And try to put to scale our solar system. And if, if you used a marble, this is a Nerf gun uh, you know, bullet, so you can tell we have Michael in the house. If you used a marble about this size to represent the earth, then you would need about seven miles to put everything else to scale in our solar system. If you tried to put the solar system on scale on a piece of paper, the planets would be so small, they'd be microscopic and you couldn't see them. So now, how many of you have done in the past maybe a science fair project or you've seen a science fair project where you know, the kid uses the styrofoam balls and maybe paints them and throws some glitter in a, in a black box? Anybody seen something like that? Yeah, well, it's not really accurate. Any pictures, in fact, that we see online, you know, we, we bring up pictures and it shows the solar system. Well, it kind of shows all the planets somewhat equally, you know, together. Well, that's not, that's not it. That's not the scale. So this is interesting as we think about how big our solar system is and how much area you would have to use to do that, uh, that scale. Anybody been to Cabela's north of, north of a 75? Okay, I've got to take a right. Yeah, it's my, Michael's favorite store, my son. So Cabela's is a cool place. 
If you were to drive from Cabela's to Kennesaw State University, that's a, down 75, that's about seven miles. So that's about how long you would need, the distance you would need to put the solar system to scale. But yet we see that creation shows God's power because that's just one galaxy. Well, not even galaxy, that's just one, just very small part of the whole universe that God's created. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. But notice the next part. Creation shows God's preservation. Nehemiah 9, verse 6, in the latter part, says, And you preserve all of them. I'm going to ask Josh to, uh, to do, put the next slide up here. This is a place, now you may find this surprising, but this is a place that was probably one of the favorite locations uh, of Kim while we lived in Brazil. You go, what, why? I mean, what's so special about this? Okay, so you see up here, Seajaspi, another name that it was known for was Seaza. And basically it was like a humongous farmer's market in the city of Sao Paulo. And so what Kim really loved to go to was what they called the Feira uh, of Flowers or the outdoor market for flowers. And it would start about 7 in the morning and I think it would go to about 11.30 or so in the morning. And you would have people from all over Brazil bringing stuff in, setting up their plants and flowers. And, and it, it was absolute, Kim's absolute favorite place to go. So on her birthday, on anniversaries, we would go, hey, let's go to Saiza. We'd get up early in the morning and try to beat traffic and get there. And then we would walk all through these, these buildings and, and look at the flowers and the plants and inevitably you know, buy some and end up bringing them back and you know, plant them in our yard. And it was, she loved being there. But at 1130, some, some bells would ring and the whole place would transform. And everybody, all the flower people and plant people would pack their trucks up, put everything away. And then the vegetables and fruits, all those people would move in. And if you didn't watch, you would literally get run over. I mean, there would be carts and people yelling, hey, get over there. They're like, Kim, come on. And you, you had to watch where you were going because it just happened like this. About 50,000, you can show a couple more slides here, Josh. So they would bring all the, all the food in. And why am I showing you this? This is food for 20 plus million people and not even all the food. But just to give you an idea of how much it takes to feed a city of 20 plus million, but then God provides enough food for 7.75 billion people a day. He preserves creation. A couple more slides. So you got fish. Next one. So as we, you know, you, you walk through and you see all of this fruit, there's about 50,000 people that come through this area a day. 50,000 people. 12,000 trucks daily that come into Seaza, bringing stuff in and out, flowers and plants and vegetables and all this. It's located on about uh, seven, let me see if I can find it here, 173 acres of space. It's about 700,000 square meters. 21 Brazilian states are represented. 15 countries have things that they're bringing in. Get this, 11,000 tons of products. That is 22 million pounds of plants, flowers, tomatoes, watermelons, green beans, broccoli, and whatever else you can imagine. That's a lot of food and stuff consumed 
by the city of 20 plus million people. Now, God supplies food, for, like I said, for 7.75 billion people a day. Now, I know this statistic may not be the same for all of us, but I, I, this, from what I read, and I've never you know, weighed my food each day, but it says we normally eat about three pounds of food a day. Anybody think you eat more than three pounds? You don't have to raise your hand. But some, it says we eat about three pounds of food a day. So if 7.75 billion people eat three pounds of food a day, it would be 23,250,000,000 pounds of food a day. And God created the world in such a way where he can preserve all of those people. And we have more than enough. Now, unfortunately, it's not distributed equally, so you certainly have people who are starving and of great sadness, but there's enough food in the world to easily feed all of its inhabitants. I'm not a huge hot dog person. I can eat one, maybe two, but uh, Matt, my brother-in-law, lo- absolutely loves hot dogs. Well, for Matt and all the hot dog lovers, with 7.75 billion people, if we only ate one hot dog a day, you put all those hot dogs together, it would circle the world about 29 and a half times at one hot dog a day per person. That's a lot of food. Now, all of that, I mean, that doesn't even touch. You've got all the fish, you have all the animals, you've got the birds, but yet God preserves all of his creation. And it shows his power, shows his faithfulness. But yet, how easy is it for me, how easy is it for you to go, God, can you, can you do it again? Can you provide for me? Do you, do you know what I'm facing? Absolutely does. And he's certainly powerful enough to provide for you. Creation shows God's preservation, but also creation shows that God is worthy of praise. Jump back with me to Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 6, the latter part of verse 6. And it says, The host of heaven worships you. Now, some translations put in that the stars of heaven. Others, uh, translations seem to indicate that this might be the angels of heaven. In either way, we see in Psalm 19, uh, we see that the heavens, I'll read it quickly. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So as we look at the stars in the sky, certainly that should remind us of God's majesty, of His power. I've never seen a, a, a sky so, quite so beautiful as outside of Pinedale, Wyoming, up at Red Cliff Bible Camp in the mountains uh, at night, and you don't have the lights of the big cities because, well, in Wyoming, you have more animals than people. And so as you're up at camp and you look up, and I, I saw stars it seems like I'd never seen in my life before. And I was reminded, God made all of those, and those declare his majesty. But also we see... Angels give praise to him. Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 says, Then I looked, John, who is used to write the book of Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Revelation 5, verse 7, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. As the stars give praise to God, 
as the angels, the myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands that it says in Revelation, as they give praise to God, how much more so should little David give praise? And you put your name there, give praise to Almighty God. He is worthy of our praise. Revelation 7.11 also says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Boy, if we could get a little bit of this reverence for him. If we could go back to a little bit of, God is just not the big guy upstairs. God isn't just the guy that I go to and and rub a little rabbit's foot and say, Hey, God, would you do this for me, big genie? God is God Almighty. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe who made such an expanse that we can't even understand it, and he deserves our praise. We see that beyond these these big picture things and how he preserves creation, but God is also a personal God, and we're going to close today with God's faithfulness with Abraham. God's faithfulness with Abraham. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7 says, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. You may remember that from our quiz last week. His first name was Abram, but then it says, And brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. We see, first of all, the Abrahamic covenant reminds us of God's faithfulness to his people. Of God's faithfulness to his people. Abraham was called a friend of God. While God was speaking to Israel in Isaiah chapter 41, he refers to them as descendants of Abraham, my friend. King Jehoshaphat, when he was talking about Abraham in 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 7, he talks about Abraham as being a friend of God. James 2.23, it says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now, we as, as humans, we appreciate friendships. We appreciate connections, and sometimes it's not, it's not uncommon when we're, we're meeting somebody or getting to know somebody, and when we find a common connection, then we begin to make more connections. Oh, well, do you know so-and-so? Oh, well, man, I went to high school with, with John, and, and now John is, you know, the mayor of the city, so if you need something, then, then just let me know, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk to John because, you know, John and I, you know, we, we went to high school together. Or, oh, oh, do you know, do you know Miss Smith? Oh, Miss Smith? Are you kidding? Yeah, I mean, my son married her daughter. I mean, we're, we're close. So if you need something from, you know, Miss Smith, who's in this area, oh, just let me know. Or, better yet, just go and tell them that David sent you, and she'll know. Now, all these are made-up things, but you know the connections. We all, we all do this. Networking is another, another name of that. Well, Abraham's called a friend of God. But not just Abraham's called a friend of God, we're called friends of God. So if Abraham could count on God's faithfulness and God completed and fulfilled his promises to Abraham, we'll see even that a little more specifically down the road, but God fulfilled his promises to Abraham, his friend, he calls us his friend, and he'll do the same. In fact, we see 
Galatians 3, verse 7, it says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Pastor David, I'm not a Jew. Well, I'm not either. But in the New Testament, it says, well, it's not just those who are Jewish. It's not just those who descended from the nation of Israel and who could trace their bloodline uh, back to Abraham, but it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, Galatians 3, verse 8 says, For seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? Preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Through Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, and then down the line, who comes as a descendant of Abraham that is capable, and the only one in such a position that is capable of blessing Every single human being that ever was born will be, or will be born. Who, who was it? Jesus Christ. So in that promise, in the Abrahamic covenant, was already looking ahead to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, one of the descendants of Abraham, who we have certainly been, been blessed as Gentiles. So it says in verse 9 of Galatians chapter 3, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus called us his friends. John chapter 15 and verse 13 Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for who? For his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Now Paul, sometimes Paul would even start the letters that he would write to the churches. He would often start, you know, uh, Paul a, a bondservant or a Paul a slave of Jesus Christ. And yes, that is our position. But Jesus says, listen, you're my friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Praise God for that. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. But you know, we're not just friends. We're family. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, notice, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I like being a friend of God, but man, I just can't understand being a child of God, and being adopted into his family. Many of you have been in our home for meals or activities, and um, if you haven't yet, uh, it'll happen soon. Hopefully, we we like to have people in our home, and we're, we're very privileged, we feel, to have friends like you who we can do life with. 
And it's not uncommon to have four or five people, you know, in the kitchen between the, the island and the stove and grabbing stuff out of drawers and getting things out of the cabinets and getting potato peelers and cutting up lettuce and, and getting meals ready. And then we sit at the table and, and we laugh and we eat food and sometimes we cry and, and we have a great time because y'all are my friends. But, you know, there's a smaller group of people who have even greater access Walk in our pantry anytime. They don't knock before they come into the house. They never have to call to say, hey, can we spend the night? You know who it is? It's my family. Because they're family. So yes, we're friends of God, but even, even beyond that, we are, we're God's family. We're adopted into him. So once again, boy, that should just usher back in our minds reasons to, to give praise to him as God our Father. He showed his faithfulness even to Abraham. We see also in the Abrahamic covenant reminds us of God's faithfulness to his promises. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 8, latter, latter part of that verse, it says, And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You have kept your promise. For you are righteous. A verse that has kind of been echoed back and around in a few weeks. It was mentioned again in, in a, the men's community group, I believe, last Wednesday, is Titus 1 2. And we're reminded it says, in hope of eternal life. This isn't just a, a hope with a boy, I, I hope it'll happen, but the, the, the promised expectation. In hope of eternal life, notice which God who never lies promised before the world began. He fulfilled his promises to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. Those of us who are in faith, those of us who know Jesus Christ, our personal Savior, we are part of Abraham's descendants now. We've been called friends of God. We've even been made into God's family. So he will certainly make due on his promises to you and to me. That's why we see in Philippians 1.6, Paul says, and I am sure of this, I mean, Paul says, hey, without a shadow of a doubt, listen, you can take it to the bank, using today's terms, it says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We can count on God's faithfulness. You know, in our, our modern times, often we'll look at online reviews. If we're thinking about going to a doctor, if we're thinking about going to a mechanic, Maybe a new restaurant. We tried a new restaurant out this last week for, for our Friday family fun night. We try to do something fun as a family. Most of the times it's in, in our house, just board games or whatever. But this last Friday night we tried a new restaurant out. What did Kim do? She went online looked at the reviews. We've passed this restaurant hundreds of times and never once have I thought about going inside. But after Kim looked at the reviews, the food is amazing. You won't be disappointed. You need to try it out or whatever else they said. We all went and we loved it because the online reviews were great. We, we like to take recommendations. We'll ask somebody, hey, do you have a good mechanic? Well, well, what chiropractor do you go to? Or what about the school that your kids go to? Do you like it? What about the teachers? What about the staff? We ask all these things. Jessica's been looking for a new car. Her, um, her Perry, which is what she has named her blue Honda Odyssey, has seen more reliable days than now. Uh, so each week it seems like we're discovering things that 
aren't working and probably aren't worth fixing. And so she's been looking for a new car, and my oldest uh, uh, brother-in-law, Matt, um, told Jessica, says, you need to call Carlos, okay? So Jessica says, why, why is that? She said, because, Matt said, because Carlos is a phenomenal salesman at the Honda dealership in Macon, Georgia. Because Matt said, you know, I don't, I don't like really being sold cars, but Carlos is low-key. He'll help you out. He'll answer your questions. He won't pressure you. He'll, he'll do, you know, what you need him to do to answer whatever you have. And so Jessica called, guess who? Carlos. And guess who Jessica's ordered a car from? Carlos. Because it was a good recommendation. You know, here in Nehemiah, we don't just have an online review. We don't have just have a few referrals. But we have a thorough record of God's perfect record of faithfulness. All the way back to the beginning of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1. And goes through the nation of, of Israel's history. And phase by phase, it recounts to the people of Israel here in Nehemiah chapter 8 and into, into chapter 9. God's faithfulness again and again and again. Therefore, you and I can say, God, we will stand up. We'll call you blessed. And we'll trust in you and we'll move forward by faith, meaning we're not always going to be able to see it. We're not always going to be able to see how the pieces come together. There's going to be many a times, and I, I know from personal experience where I've wondered, God, what are you doing? God, are you doing anything? But yet again and again, he shows, yes, I am. I'm working and I'm faithful and you can trust me.